as we turn together to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 19. Our text this morning is among one of the most exciting, disturbing, and odd texts in all of the New Testament. It is the description of a riot that nearly occurs. It is a description of how the church interacts with a culture that is hostile. So let's now turn together to Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the, into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, 
Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word to teach us, to encourage us, to show us how you are in control. We ask, O Lord, that we would see your wisdom in providing this account from the hand of your servant Luke. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, perhaps lately, what should we do in a hostile world? A world that is hostile to Jesus Christ, to church, to the Bible. Maybe you've asked yourself how you are to act in a relativistic world where things that you hold dear are shrugged off as, well, that's okay for you. But that possibly, that can't possibly be true for everyone. Perhaps you wonder what it is like to live and survive in a world that feels threatened by you. Threatened by the gospel. Threatened by the claims of Jesus Christ. And I think for many of us, this becomes all the more acute because we have not thought, we have not predicted that we would be living in a place where we don't run things. We hadn't thought we would ever come to an America where the church wouldn't be in control, where there wouldn't be certain morals and guidelines. We never thought we would come to live in a place where there would be so much chaos and uncertainty, where things that we took for granted for decades are now thought immaterial. If you have wondered these things, and as you have watched the news, and as you have read reports, if you have gotten in the pit of your stomach a bit of unease, then you need to know that while this may be unusual for you and for me in our lifetimes, it is not unusual for the people of God. As a matter of fact, this kind of chaotic, upturned, relativistic, hostile world is the place where the church and the gospel have grown most in the history of the world. Our country, our world is becoming more and more like Bible times, in which there is a relativism afoot, in which there is a hostility to the gospel. And this wonderfully humorous passage gives us some insight in how to interact with just such a world. What I'd like us to see this morning are three things from this text. Three things, each beginning with C to be easy to remember. First, we're going to see contact with a hostile world. The church as it has contact with a hostile world. And then second, we will see the church as it interacts by challenging the idolatry of the age. Challenging idolatry. And then finally, we will see the church as it brings change that is real by the gospel. So contact, a challenge, and change. 
Let's begin then by looking at the contact that this church has in Ephesus with a hostile world. Let me, if I can, set the stage a bit for it. Because the second half of chapter 19 doesn't drop out of the sky like, like a stone for Artemis. No, it comes in a context. And the context in which it is seen is this passage is an interruption in the kingdom work that Paul and his companions have. It is an interruption of what has been going on in their lives. You recall the past successes that Paul and those who were with him have had. Earlier in this chapter, we saw a a mini-Pentecost as disciples were, were baptized and the Spirit came down upon them. We saw the wonderful conversion of so many who began burning their books of sorcery and magic at great cost to themselves. There is also in the scenes behind here wonderful work going on in the church. It's at this time that Philemon is converted. Philemon of the book Philemon. It's at this time that Epaphras, Paul's wonderful pastoral assistant in Colossae, is converted. Because Colossae is just up the road. You might even consider Colossae is our sugarland. It's another city just down the road. And the church is growing not only in Ephesus, but it's growing in Colossae and it's growing throughout all of Asia. There is past success to build on. There are also present challenges facing Paul. You see this here at the beginning of our text. Paul resolves in the Spirit to go to Macedonia and Achaia and then to go to Jerusalem. And you may ask yourselves, what's the big deal? Why is Paul doing this? Well, we know from Paul's letters that what's happening is there is a famine in Jerusalem. The church is literally dying. The sick and the old are dying from lack of food. And Paul has written to the churches that he has founded in Greece and asked them for help. And they have raised up assistance. And Paul now needs to go over and get that help and take it to Jerusalem. So not only does he have a past success to build on, he's got something right in front of him he has to do. Now, this is important. Because let me ask you a question to set the scene in your mind. Have you ever been interrupted when doing something important? You know you are working on your taxes. Or trying to get some work done from home. Or you're in the middle of making dinner and three pans and pots are going at once. And inevitably, someone comes up. Sometimes it's a child. Sometimes it's a spouse. And says, you know, I need to, I need your attention right now. I have this decision I need to make in two weeks. And you think to yourself, why, why are you interrupting me? And you get annoyed and you get agitated because you're distracted from what's at hand. That's what's happening here to Paul and the church. They have many things in front of them. And now here, the world is interrupting this kingdom work they are seeking to do. Because there's still actually future work to get done. Paul has his eyes not just on Jerusalem, but on Rome. And beyond Rome, we know that he has his eyes on Spain. Paul is thinking great, big gospel thoughts. Into the midst of all of this, interrupts someone who's very concerned that profits are down 9%. And this needs immediate attention. And it should consume the city and the church. Now, 
Why is this kingdom work that Paul and others are doing interrupted? It is interrupted because in Ephesus, like in Colossae, like in Athens, like in Houston, idolatry is omnipresent. Idolatry is everywhere in Ephesus. And this should not surprise us. One of my favorite quotes from John Calvin is where he says that man's heart is a factory of all sorts of idols. It is a Ford assembly line of idols of every kind. And we see this in Romans chapter 1. When Paul gets there, he will describe to the Romans how idolatry gets hold of people. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived at the creation of the world. But the problem is that although they knew God, Paul says, They did not honor Him as God. They did not give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is the state of the world, exchanging God for something else. Now, this may not be as obvious to us because we don't live in a place where people make little silver statues and hand them out and you go into a building with a big roaring fire and put it out in front. There are other forms of idolatry that attack us. But in the ancient world, we need to understand how pervasive idolatry was, what Paul faced. I think sometimes we think about ancient gods and idolatry as something that happened like when like those of us that are drawn to church only on Christmas and Easter. It's something maybe once, twice a year, people get together, they have a parade, they do this. But nobody really took idolatry seriously. Nobody ever really built shrines in their homes. When the reality is that this story is an incredibly vivid first-hand account of how pervasive idolatry is in the world in Paul's days. You see... Idols were everywhere. They were in cities. They were in the country. They were in homes. They were in businesses. There was an entire industry. We see that here from the text. You see, Demetrius is the silversmith. And he has dozens of workers working for him, making little tiny idols of Artemis. He is a man who has an entire Fortune 500 company in Ephesus around idol making. So it's something that's absolutely pervasive in the ancient world, but especially here in Ephesus. You see, Artemis is the center of the civic being, the center of the religious being of Ephesus. She was also known, perhaps some of you have seen this in older translations of the Bible, as Diana. To the Greek, she was Artemis. To the Roman, she was Diana. She was the huntress. She was the unmarried virgin goddess. But she was also 
a native goddess to Asia. She was the embodiment of the mother goddess. So she represented fertility. If you wanted your crops to grow, you had to seek her favor. If you wanted to have children to take care of you in your old age, you had to pray to her and seek her favor. If you wanted your business to grow, you had to go to her and seek her favor. And nowhere was Artemis worshipped more than in Ephesus. It is said that there were 33 cities throughout the ancient world that had temples to Artemis. But this was the capital of Artemis worship. The temple that was built to Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That means it was up there with the pyramids. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. You know that large building in Athens with the columns? You've seen the pictures. Now imagine that it is four times bigger with 120 pillars. It is the largest building in all of ancient Greece, bar none. Now you can see why those who live in Ephesus, like Demetrius, like the town clerk, can say, well, this is obvious. Everyone knows that Artemis is loved in Ephesus and that she's the most important thing that there is. You see, this is the context in which Paul is ministering. He has this kind of context This kind of contact with a world that is filled up with idolatry. That sees him as encroaching upon their right to worship Artemis. You see, because that is the problem in Ephesus. Paul challenges their idolatry. And he does it in a very interesting way. It's not the way in which we picture challenges. If we think of challenging the culture, what do we think of? We think of marches on Washington, don't we? We think of large petition campaigns. We think of boycotts of companies. We think of ways to make the news and to spread it throughout the people's consciousness. But Paul attacks idolatry at its source. He attacks it by declaring that God is the only true and living God. And he attacks their idolatry both externally and internally. The external is easier to see. After all, Demetrius gives us our cues here. He says, you know, guys, this Paul is a really big troublemaker. Not just here, but down the road in Colossae. And over in Laodicea, and in all the cities, he's going around, and he has the audacity to say that the gods that we make with our hands aren't real gods at all. And you know what this is doing to us? It's cutting into business. Profits are down. I was going to hire two guys to help in the wood shop, and now I have to lay off three. I mean, and we can't get the city to pass a stimulus package. I can get no help at all. Nobody will drag him off. What are we going to do? We need to take matters into our own hands. You see, there's an external threat here that is, that is obvious. These craftsmen are worried about their livelihood. Because you see, this, this craft union, this, these craftsmen are sort of part union, part social organization. They have a strata in society. And you see, even in our day, how people who feel like their segment of society is being squeezed, how they take to the streets. 
Haven't we seen even recently over economic issues, people get violent, shoving, pushing, hitting. And overseas we see it not only getting shoving and pushing, but we see shooting and killing. People take their livelihood seriously. You see, Paul has had the audacity to say that you can't make a god with your hands and metal and wood. Now, stop for a moment and think about this. Demetrius is all upset because Paul says that the little figurines that he makes aren't gods. It's ludicrous on its face. So ludicrous that Isaiah in chapter 44, he's comical about it. He says, you know what you do. You cut down a tree and you chop it up into pieces. And with some you make fire for a firewood. And others you make a spoon and you eat with it. And with another piece you make a god. And we think, well, this is foolish. But you see, that's how the world is to the gospel. They're blinded to their own foolishness. Demetrius is actually putting forward as his best argument. You know... He says we really can't make gods to rule over us. This is the challenge that Paul gives to their very fiber of being. And Demetrius is an intelligent man because after he makes the monetary argument, he then makes the popular argument. Do you see this? He says not only might we lose our wealth, but there's a danger that the temple of the great goddess will be put into disrepute that people will stop worshiping Artemis. Why? Because Paul says she's not a real goddess. Now think about that in our modern society. Think about how people react to you when you look at them straight in the face and say, you know, the Big Bang out of nothing isn't real. What? You know, I don't think people came from monkeys who came from dogs who came from cats who came from bugs. What? How dare you threaten the great goddess science? How dare you? You're going to make it fall into disrepute. If we actually have people that read the Bible, then Harvard and Yale and Brown and Stanford will fall apart and we'll start worshiping sticks and no one will know math and nothing will happen and the world will fall apart. I'm only being a tiny bit dramatic. Because you see, that's how the world views that. And see, our challenge in the world today is not to look at this text and say, well, nobody worships Artemis. But to think, who is the Artemis of our age? What is the idolatry that blinds people from Jesus Christ? Where do people seek to find false meaning? You see, this is the challenge to idolatry. And idolatry does not like being challenged. It's not just scientists. Because you see, people when their worldview is challenged put up a defense. And this defense is twofold. First, it is the highly thought out, sophisticated argument. Well, you know everybody does it. And then second, there's an appeal to emotions. What do I mean by everybody does it? Look with me at verse 27. Demetrius says, you know, this attack has come on Artemis and we can't have her be deposed from her magnificence because she's the one that Asia and all the world worship. 
town clerk, who's really, he's not the guy that sits in the DMV. The town clerk is really the equivalent of the mayor. The mayor comes out and he says in verse 35, he says, men of Ephesus, is there really anybody that doesn't know that Ephesus is the place where you worship Artemis? I mean, come on, everybody knows this. You jump up, you come down. It rains, you get wet. And at Ephesus, you worship Artemis. And this is an argument that also seems a bit humorous on its face until we think about it in our context. How many times this week has someone attempted to convince you of the truth of something by putting in front of you a poll? 78% of Americans believe. 56% of those who own property think. Right? Should we be in Libya? I don't know the answer to that. It's not in our text, but I can tell you this. The answer does not come from asking a bunch of people whether they think we should be in Libya. It comes from actual facts and thinking about things and policy. And you see, this happens on both sides of the aisle. We appeal to numbers. We appeal to, well, you know, everybody knows in Houston this happens. This is the kind of thing that strikes us. There's also something very personal here. And I want to speak directly to our young people. Those of you that are in middle school, high school, and college. You will be badgered into thinking all sorts of things are right with the magic words, everybody does it. Or the alternative magic words, nobody believes that. It's the same kind of appeal. It's an appeal without an argument. Think for yourself. The modern world wants you to be convinced that the Bible and the church want to take thinking away from you. In reality, it is the idolaters that want to take thinking away from you. They want you to be the kind of people that run into a theater and scream at the top of your lungs for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Can you imagine how silly that would sound? It sounded pretty silly. I just said it once. Let's imagine we stayed here until about one o'clock. It would get old pretty quick, wouldn't it? But you see, this is the same kind of appeal that they give to you. And it's not just young people. It's men at work. You're told, well, you know, everybody fudges a bit on the side. Well, you know, everybody takes advantage of the company on trips. It says it to ladies. You know, everybody treats their husband with a little bit of disrespect every once in a while. Don't fall for the everybody argument. Don't fall for this weak defense. There's a second defense that the Ephesians bring through, and it's, it's even more humorous than the first. Now, I want you to imagine the scene in your mind's eye. Demetrius is probably like me up at a pulpit or some kind of stand, and he is lecturing and he's pounding on the pulpit and he's telling them what they got to do and how they got to fix it and how they can drive up profits. And everybody is getting whipped up into a frenzy. And then they go out into the street 
And they're all grabbing sticks and beating on houses and making a racket and yelling. They find two people. Hey, those guys were with Paul. And they grab him. And people poke their head out the window. What's going on? Come on, we're going to take back Ephesus. Ephesus for the Ephesians. Okay, Ephesus for the Ephesians. Okay. And they all get out there and what's happening? And then they go further down the road. And a guy sticks his head out, probably a single college guy, and he says, what's going on? They say, I don't know, but I think there's free food. All right, let's go. Free food. Ephesus for the Ephesians. And then they go further down. Free food. Free food for the Ephesians. All right, let's go to the theater. What are you doing? I don't know. I'm bored. Well, there's some guys over Let's go see what they're doing. And they all just rush into the theater. Now, 25,000 people fit in this theater. And they go in there and some people are yelling, free food! And other people are yelling, Artemis! And some people are yelling, I don't know why I'm here! And it's confusion. I mean, that's what's happening. It's very funny the way Luke describes it. This is what idolatry brings you to. They're there and they're yelling and they don't even know why they're yelling, Luke says. And the only thing they can agree on is when someone finally gets up to try and calm the situation down. The Jews say to themselves, well, listen, we're not for Paul, but they're going to confuse us with Paul, so we better get somebody who can calm the situation down. Alexander, come on. And you can imagine they probably did one of two things. They probably either stood and said, everyone, anyone who wants to defend us, take one step forward, and then they all go back one. Alexander's looking around. Or they're pushing him. Come on, you can do it. Come on. He gets up there and he waves his hand. And you can imagine this crowd, they don't know what's going on, but they look at him and they see he's a Jew. And they figure that the answer to this is to yell at the top of their lungs a slogan for two hours. Now think about that. That's almost the length of a whole football game. And all they're doing is yelling the same thing over and over and over again. Do you see what Paul has done? The trouble that he has caused? And what has he done? Has he boycotted the temple? No. Has he brought Demetrius up on charges? No. Has he tried to get the Ephesus council to pass laws? No. What in the world has Paul done to cause all this ruckus? He taught a Bible study for two years in the afternoon when everybody else was taking a nap. You ever cause a riot with a Bible study? Do you see the power of the Word of God? You see, sometimes we get so worked up with so many other things, and I want you, this afternoon, assign someone at the lunch table to start at Acts 1 and to find every case where the narrative goes something like this. They were teaching and preaching. There was a riot. They were teaching and preaching. A fight broke out. You'll see it's about a dozen times. It happens over and over and over again. Paul is turning the world upside down by his preaching and teaching. Because you see, he's not just challenging their idolatry externally. The reason these folks are so upset is because he's challenging them internally. You see, this uprising does not come out of the blue These people have seen their lifestyle challenged for two years by Paul. Not just by what Paul says, but by what 
by all of the people that He has brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ who have given up on their former lifestyle. Peter puts it this way very well in 1 Peter 4.4. 4. He says, you know, those who run out and do all sorts of rotten things, they are upset because you don't run out and do rotten things with them anymore. And because you actually think people shouldn't do rotten things. And that gets them awfully angry. Does that sound a bit like our society? If we talk about the importance of marriage and the importance of intimacy within marriage, people get very upset, don't they? Do you think they get upset because you like marriage? No, they're upset because you're implicitly saying that marriage is the place for intimacy. And if they are outside of there, then they are being called into question. This is the problem. This is the challenge in Ephesus. But it's not just an internal challenge to their lifestyle. It's also a challenge to the emptiness of their lives. Because you see, Paul is really challenging the day-after-day emptiness that makes up the life of a person outside of Christ. Get up. Eat. Hope the day doesn't go horribly. Buy a little silver figurine. Put it in the temple. Go to bed. Hope that you wake up alive in the morning. Repeat. You see, there's an emptiness in their lives. And Paul is challenging that. Do you you see the irony in Demetrius saying, Paul is ruining our lives. He's ruining our lives by telling us about God and giving meaning to our lives and telling us that we ought to treat each other with love and respect and telling us we ought to gather together and support one another. He's ruining our lives. This is the foolishness of idolatry. It's what's behind this confusion and chanting that the mob has. But before we just talk about other people, let me stop for a moment and ask you a question. Do you allow the gospel to challenge you? Does the gospel challenge you in your not only your external behavior, not only the things you buy and the ways you spend your money, and the things you pour your life into. But does the gospel challenge you internally to find meaning in life? To find true wisdom? To find purpose? To know true love? Because you see, the gospel is not just for those people out there who need help. It's for those people in here who need help. It's for the person up here who needs help. We need to be challenged from the idolatry that binds us up. It's probably not, I'm guessing, buying Artemis figurines. It's probably not even buying superhero figurines. Although maybe for some of you that's your idolatry. Some of you of younger ages. But it could be work. Could be your children. Could be your hobby could be your intellect. There are many things that we are prone, we are tempted to place above God. But this text reminds us that there's no life found there. Well, 
there is contact with a hostile society. And that contact becomes great friction because Paul challenges their idolatry. And that challenge is important because it points to a change that is real. There is real change going on here in Ephesus. Both, again, externally and internally. Externally, there is real change going on. There is a great impact on society. Now, I know we said that that Paul didn't call for a boycott. But I want to ask you a question. If Christians could get together and put together a program, a boycott, an idea that would wipe out all of the profitability of pornography, would you sign up now? If I said to you, I guarantee if we have 100,000 signatures, pornography will go away from the Internet. Would you sign up? If I said to you, you know what, if we can just raise enough funds, divorce will be gone forever in our society. Would you sign up? I hope you would. I hope you would want to see these good things of the Lord. Chastity. Marriage upheld. And very often, we are willing to do this. And there is nothing wrong with battling wickedness. But here's the question. How did Paul wipe out the economic impact of idolatry? He didn't do it economically. He didn't sign a petition. What he did was slow, steady, dare I say, boring gospel work. He taught Sunday school. He baptized babies. He had ladies' lunches. He went and visited the sick. I mean, he did things that were so boring that we're we're not even really told what he did in Ephesus for two and a half years. Can you find it in chapter 19? It says he taught in the hall of Tyrannus while other people were taking a siesta. That's it. But that work, the power of the Word of God, changed Ephesus. It got Wall Street's attention. That is how the church can have an impact in Katy, in Houston, in America. By standing for the gospel, by preaching and teaching, by encouraging and loving, by sharing and showing hospitality, don't ever kid yourself into thinking those things don't matter. When you hear someone telling you that it doesn't really matter if you had that new family over for lunch, you know, don't bother to go to the Bible study. That's the devil whispering in your ear, telling you it's not really that important. You say to the devil, Paul showed me how important it was in Ephesus. It's how he changed the city. You see, this kind of external change happens because there is an internal change. Paul wasn't just talking to hear himself speak. He was preaching and teaching, and what was happening was lives were being changed. People were coming to know the Lord. People were changing their lifestyle, their behavior. They were changing the way they viewed their families, changing the way they viewed their jobs. Because you see, real change in society comes not from changing institutions, but from changing people. That's where real change comes from. This is a challenge. 
So in conclusion, let me say this. If you want real change, if you want to see your neighborhoods changed for Christ, if you want to see this town changed for Christ, you'd better get ready because one of the other things this chapter shows us is that real change brings real trouble. Doesn't it? You see, the closer you are to the King of Kings, the closer you are to the firing line. The closer you are to people who want to take pot shots at you. Are you prepared to change? Are you prepared to see Katie changed by the power of the Gospel and the Holy Spirit through us as His servants? I challenge you this morning to think of this. I spent some time yesterday at the airport with a good friend. He's a physician in his late 80s. And I was so thankful that as we said goodbye, he grabbed my hands. You know when someone does that and you can't get away? It's surprising how strong an 85-year-old or older is. He grabbed my hands. And he prayed with me. And he prayed that this church would someday be 400 strong. So that this church could plant churches. So that the gospel could go forward in Katy and Jesus Christ would be glorified. Do you want to see that kind of change? Do you want to see Jesus glorified in the streets? Then pray. It can happen. Happen in Ephesus. Just by teaching and preaching. And having people over for lunch. Don't ever underestimate the power of the true and living 